If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will talk to Wall Street Journal national baseball reporter Jared Diamond about his love of Disney theme parks as well as my multiple traumatizing experiences at those same parks. And we will do our best to cover everything going on in the sports world that has nothing to do with sports. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And joining me in our Brooklyn, New York Bureau, seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. First of all, Gareth, did you make it to midnight on New Year's? Yes. Uh, a friend of ours who lives on the next block, and her daughter is in my daughter's class. Uh, her name is Jessica Edwards. She is a filmmaker, and she won a Peabody on the same night we did. Uh, awesome. So if you want the ultimate kind of uh, Brooklyn media thing, like both our daughters are in the same class. Uh, she turned 40 at the stroke of midnight. So Amy and I went and she had a big party in Williamsburg at a bowling alley called gutter. And we had a blast. I bowled. There was dancing involved. She served donuts instead of traditional cake or cupcakes. And we had a great time. So I was in bed. I was in bed by 1030 that night. Nice work. Yeah, I didn't even make it to 11, which would be Eastern New Year, which is a, a, <laughs> an old an old Chicago trick when you're in central time, man. You just go, you know what? We'll make it to 11 and just like sign off uh, after the ball drops. This year, I was like, Mom, <laughs> she was in town. I was like, Mom, I'm going to Kelly and I are going to sleep. Kids are in bed. Violet's getting up at like six in the morning. <laughs> like the kids, the kids do not cooperate. Yeah. Um, kids don't celebrate New Year's. They don't care. Yeah. <laughs> no, they do not. My birthday is September 30th, which means I am the quintessential New Year's Eve baby. Oh, yeah. I love like, that game. I love playing that game, though. Yeah. The like, what happened I, nine it, months it, earlier. So, yeah, that's awesome. 100% New Year's Eve conception. Yeah. Like, there can be no other explanation. <laughs> yeah. Well, and all, yeah, nobody's doing it on the 28th, man. Like, it just ain't <laughs> happening. Yeah, or I guess I guess the most uh, someone told me just today, like the highest volume of uh, births is like around mid September, which means there are a ton of Christmas babies. Huh? That's I can't imagine. I cannot imagine getting through Christmas with all family around and everything, and being like, "Yeah, what I want to do now is like, uh, you know, it. just <laughs> yeah, it. S- slip to a side room and just figure this out." No way. It's more like my hands are hurting from like the paper and the tape, and I just want to put on like tie one on and go to sleep. It's fu- you know, it's funny. I kept thinking over Christmas. I was like, you know, ever since I stopped drinking, I'm I'm more involved in Christmas and. I do more shopping for the kids, and that's good for them. But I also do more wrapping for the kids, and that's bad for them. Because, <laughs> man, <laughs> my wrapping looks like shit. <laughs> so. I'm a good rapper, man. I will say that. I am. Uh, I, I, do, I do a solid, thorough tape job that is hard to open, but looks great under a tree. It's the corners, man. If you can make your corners look uniform, you're a champion in my eyes. All right. Anyway, the holidays are over. <laughs> we will deal with that at an appropriate time. Right now, we're going to take the open of the show and make it wide open. Anything around the sports world that is not sports is fair game. Gareth, why don't... Oh, uh, by the way, our other co-hosts not here tonight. Adam Willard, sick as a dog. Uh, we were going to we were gonna get ahead, maybe tape a couple things. Uh, Adam was like, I'm pulling the plug on that. So you'll hear from him next week. He'll be back. And Joe Reed on his honeymoon enjoying Hawaii. Uh, Is that so, a four-month honeymoon at this point? Three yeah, months? I, I, Joe, <laughs> Joe Reed's 
been on a he's been on a series of honeymoons <laughs> from our show. <laughs> but uh, no, we've we've heard he him a couple times. Here, that, that wasn't yeah. fair. I, I, that yeah. was you know happy honeymoon, Joe. Found yeah. All right, so right now we're gonna take the open of the show and make it wide open. Anything around the sports world that is not the sports world is fair game. Gareth, why don't you start us off this week? What's uh, what's on your mind? Well, so this is one I wanted to talk about. I actually brought this up with some guys at work today. I think that this is a little sportsy, but it's going to get into making fun of sports media analysis, which I think is definitely in our lane. Um, but Brad, over the years as we've been talking, you've had this theory that Michael Jordan ruined sports analysis. Um I might be make, painting that a little too broadly, but basically it was that... For a large section of the media, yes. That he, he, he set an unrealistically high standard of excellence, and it was such a, it was such a, a clean progression from can't win the big one to vanquished all the foes of his era in order to 6-0 yep. and oh in the finals. It does allow people to make really sloppy arguments about, oh, LeBron could never be as good as Jordan because... You know, six and zero in the finals. Like it just, it right, just right. makes it really hard. Or so and so is the next Jordan, and it's like, well, that's not going to happen. So just let that person be, let Kobe be Kobe, and let LeBron be LeBron, and right. Let's all move on with our lives. Well, so I was thinking about that over the end of the NFL season, as you know, Black Monday came, and some of the big news was that Marvin Lewis was signing a two-year deal in Cincinnati, and. There are plenty of arguments for the fact that Marvin Lewis should be done there and how are they tuning him out and things like that. But I just I couldn't help but think of your line about Michael Jordan when it's like, man, Marvin Lewis is a really good NFL football coach. And I think in the same way that Jordan did, I think Bill Belichick has ruined coaching analysis in the NFL because now it's like, Man, you know, he's just he's there's he's no Bill Belichick. Well, nobody is. I mean, Vince Lombardi <laughs> might not have been Bill Belichick and he certainly wouldn't have been able to do that in this day and age. Like Andy Reid is a really good coach and there's a lot of decent coaches in the NFL that when you put them next to a guy who won 5 Super Bowls, went to 7, has won 12 games like umpteen years in a row, like just they've been in the, they've had a buy in the playoffs for eight straight years. I mean, that's crazy. It's a, like, it's fascinating to follow, but it's also an unrealistic standard. That's where it's become like, okay, Marvin Lewis is fine, man. Just pencil him in and go from there, dude, like bring it back in August. So I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah. And as, as for our listeners, like I'm, like a, a diehard Bengals fan, I guess you, you would describe. Uh, would you say that's accurate, Gareth? Yes, I would definitely yeah. say that's accurate. Like like entire seasons where I sat alone in a bar by myself for Bengals Sundays watching on one TV, which they set aside for me with no sound on the direct TV. Um, I'm going to keep this away from the on-the-field analysis. I'm just going to focus on my fandom about the news because... Yeah. 2013, Brad. Focus would on have your been, fandom and focus on the media. That's all I care yeah. about. Yeah. 2013, Brad would have been incredulous. Like, <laughs> he would have been hot because after we lost that Chargers playoff game, I was like, burn it all down. Like, just move the team. Like, let's reboot. <laughs> yeah. This year, I found myself actually happy they brought Marvin back because. Marvin Lewis for the, has been the Bengals for my adult life. Like he got hired when I was just getting out of college, mm -hmm. and the team had been terrible for like my entire life since fourth grade. I mean, since, well, no, since you know, in fourth grade they went to the Super Bowl, and then my my uh, my youth they were hot garbage. Yeah. So Marvin Lewis is the Bengals to me, and I just had a moment where I was saying to someone. I think I'm just to the point where I would rather ride it out and win with him if we can than just that that's more important to me right now mm -hmm. than just hiring some new coach that like may or may not pan out. Uh, and like the land live in Chicago, like the Bears have done. Like they just have been grasping for coaches, and that's fine. But if they just kept Lovey Smith around, there'd be a contingent of fans that would be like, yeah, I'm rooting for Lovey. Like, let's get it done. We've gone this far. What's two more years? Like, fine. Right, right. So I think there, 
but that's a different way of looking at it than I've been traditionally. Um, as for the media and Belichick, yeah, it's just that he doesn't have pure perfection the way that Jordan does. I mean, you can still make arguments against the the Patriots because of like Spygate and like the creepy stuff that they've done and and mm. the Super Bowls they've lost and 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 that kind of stuff. I just uh, but I'm with you that if they just keep winning and and they win another Super Bowl and he gets to 6, I mean, I don't even know how you I don't even know how you compartmentalize that level of success for the next 20 years. I mean, every yeah, everybody will be judged against how come you didn't go to 11 AFC title games? And yeah, right. it's, just, it's, it's just, insane. It's kind of silly. And I don't know. Sometimes you just... Somebody was saying at work when I brought this up, they were like, well, it's a generational talent. I'm like, but that's not even... Gener- like, some of those numbers aren't generational. Like, or that's a big generation between Bill Russell, like, going 9-0 and in NBA finals. And then 25 years later, I guess that's end of the 60s and mid 90s I, I guess that's a longer generation for Jordan to do it in the NBA but I don't know I mean like this run might never happen in the NFL again amen all right so if you don't mind can I keep going I have another one okay yeah speaking Is of Bengals related speaking of the Bangles and speaking of sports <laughs> media oh <laughs> my Christmas gift <laughs> Carson Palmer retired and oh yeah the first moment I ever heard you talk about sports, not as a fan, but as a PR professional, was when you called me up and we were talking about the Bengals and we were talking about Carson Palmer. And he gave an interview with Sports Illustrated where he said he outlined his like life goals or something like that. I don't remember who it was. It wasn't SI, but it was, it was okay. like Sporting Maxim News or made, Stuff or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Stuff is perfect. And he said his number one goal was to shoot a 10-point buck. And you were like, I'm not just saying this as a Bengal fan, but as a public relations professional, uh, Carson, maybe make that number two and (laughs) make your number one goal, just for the fans, you know, win five Super Bowls. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I said. I was like... First of all, it should because number two was win the Super Bowl. You know, so it was there, <laughs> right, but it was right. behind getting this buck. And I just remember being like, if I was the PR guy, I would just exit out and be like, number one, win ten straight Super Bowls and ten straight Super Bowl MVPs. Number right. two, kill kill said deer. Like just, <laughs> you know, like just just play the game, man. <laughs> just make it seem like it's a little more important. I don't I did I did work with him that year at the Super Bowl. The the first Super Bowl you and I ever went to for work in it was the it was Giants Pats 1 yep, in 42. Phoenix. And um it, 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 I remember working with Carson and he was a prince. Like he was a great guy, really really professional, really nice. We talked about hunting a little bit. He gave me some of his outdoors places in Cincinnati and stuff. But I, I just think yeah, that was <laughs> that was bad optics. <laughs> now, as a, as a PR guy, if that had come to you and you made that change, would you have bothered to send it back to him? Just be like, oh yeah, I said that thing into stuff. It'll be out next month. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't even. I don't remember what his third one was. I'm sure. I'm sure it was. It was pretty benign. I mean, number. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it is killing a ten buck. Uh, Admittedly, Gareth, hunting is not in our wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So this I'm not sure whether that's really like, cover. is that the deer equivalent of being like, kill two real unicorns? I have no idea. <laughs> right, I mean, right, right. But uh, we'll have to ask Brett Favre, a friend of show who talked about <laughs> hunting a few weeks ago. My wide open, I want to start with an apology to our listeners. I did not get the opportunity between work and kids to watch the Rob Gronkowski Showtime comedy special. <laughs> we don't have Showtime and it was going to require me to like just hijack and like somebody's password to see it. I did catch enough of it online in various snippets to make the assessment that Gronk's uh, stand-up debut fell somewhere between on the spectrum of quality, somewhere between like Pat McAfee accomplished uh, NFL stand-up and like you know on the other end of this, on the other end of the spectrum Mike the Situation's <laughs> Donald Trump roast <laughs> sketch uh, which was the ultimate disaster you know I think he was fine I just don't think his material was good it just was like 
like his Tom Brady stuff, which which was I think TMZ posted. I just I didn't think it hit hard enough, and I'm like, if you can't really swipe at Tom Brady and get ballsy, then just don't do it. Like you have enough in your lifestyle to I think just talk about how crazy it is being Gronk. And you don't have to like just make the standard football jokes that would make us laugh because we follow the team. When did this so, air? I think it was on the fifth. It said all the stories about it were like January fifth, Friday, I did January fifth. Not 5th. see a lot about this, and like I follow the Patriots. Yeah, I mean you worked for the Patriots, right? Right. <laughs> You're right. pretty plugged, and I and I would argue I'm fairly plugged into what athletes do that has nothing to do with sports. Right. Well, um, but I would have thought this one would have been way more on my radar. I think I kind of saw some mentions of it, and but mostly it was rolled in with Gronkowski versus Dave Chappelle. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, I would. That's not. That's like Chappelle trying to guard him. I mean, I just, right, right. I just don't think that's a yeah. fair, that's a fair fight. I mean, it got a bunch of play last year. There's a couple like kind of quotes that came out of, um, you know, in Boston media and TMZ and that kind of stuff. Uh, it, the special was called unsportsmanlike comedy. And he was kind of just the host for other comics that were doing it a little oh, yeah. bit like, um, Def Comedy Jam or something like that where, uh, you know, got a dude's it. just kind of filler in between my advice for Grant, look, this is just not sports. I love that he did it. I love that he's pursuing comedy. My advice is to steer more into the craziness of your life, or at least the perceptual craziness of your life, and don't make so many jokes about football, because I just don't, <laughs> I don't care. Right, <laughs> I right. just don't care, Grant. Speaking of people who are funny in football without necessarily even meaning to be, uh, Lane Kiffin on Twitter yeah, is, a yeah. <laughs> is a strong follow. He's a strong follow. So, former flame-out head coach at Tennessee, then USC, uh, son of Monty Kiffin. The Raiders. Believe, right? Don't forget the friggin' Raiders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Raiders. Uh, and then he goes to – he gets kind of reinvented at Alabama as this uh, offensive coordinator um, for some of the title teams. Gets fired the championship game. Okay, so that's, that's what I think – makes this so fascinating so last year right and we're taping this during the college football championship game tonight so i have no idea how alabama is doing but when i so when i say last year it's i mean 13 like, nothing the, going into the half georgia's winning oh wow well um so i'm picturing last year being the second of the two clemson title games so lane kiffin's the offensive coordinator he gets a job at fau i think florida atlantic right to uh, be their head yeah. coach and he's gonna leave and after the first semifinal, but before the championship game, Saban's just like, peace, bro. Why don't you get started on recruiting now? But normally when that stuff happens, coaches either kind of say the right thing or they just let there be like low-key hostility. Lane Kiffin's just not holding back. Like he has routinely trolled Saban on Twitter. He's been super candid. About, he was super candid about the Tennessee search and the stuff that went on with that. He's a fascinating follow. And Gareth, I just wonder, this has been a year and really a, a, a few years where we've seen social media rewrite the norms of many professions. So do you think we're, we're going to go to a place where college coaches are more candid online, just kind of talking shit to their competitors? Or is that just still going to be taboo and Lane's just the exception to the rule? I don't think NFL coaches will ever do it because... There is an aspect of professionalism that's part of it. Like, you can have a personality, but some of the shit talk crosses a line into just, like, I don't know, a little borderline um, but in poor taste. Now, in college, where you're trying to connect with these young kids, and you kind of have to connect with these young kids, um, I think you will see more outlandish behavior from some coaches. I mean, you already do. College coaches have more personality than NFL guys. Um, and and I think are generally like a quirkier crowd. You know, Dabo, Mike Leach. I mean, those are there's some weirdos in college football. I do think that Lane Kiffin is on the extreme edge of what you will see from social media. I don't I think he's pretty far out there and strange. But I also think that that's going to give... I think it's the best thing that FAU has ever done. And it'll help him in recruiting and connecting with with the kids he wants to go there. And 
ultimately be a win for him. That's got it. That's kind of who he is at this point, clearly, and he's doing it. But I think like some other coach tries that as a recruiting tactic and like starts to get memes wrong, they will be a laughing stock and it will blow up in their face and they'll lose a recruiting class. Yeah, I mean, here, Kiffin quotes Nick Saban saying, quote, I don't yell at my assistants very much at all. And he goes, are these real quotes? I don't get upset <laughs> at my coaches much. Two question marks and then an emoji. <laughs> like this guy, I don't know. During the Tennessee stuff, he was dropping like entire tweets that oh, were just yeah. emojis. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, yeah, Lane, like go for it. I don't know, man. You know me. I want these guys to be as colorful as possible. I can't get enough LeBron subtweets. Like, just give me all, <laughs> give me all the tweeting. And I have so much more respect for Lane for not just, not just doing it anonymously. Like he makes it clear he's he's hitting at Saban. You know, like good right, for him. Right. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, that's wide open this week. Lane Kiffin, keep doing what you're doing. Gronk, keep doing what you're doing. Marvin Lewis, I'm with you. (laughs) Until the end. Oh, Captain, my captain. And Carson Palmer, in retirement, I hope you find that 10-point buck you've always been after. I hope you do too, my friend. When you do, come on the show. We'll talk about it. Um, Okay, right now, we're going to go to an interview I got to do with uh, Jared Diamond from the Wall Street Journal. You know him as a really talented reporter who covers Major League Baseball, as well as some other sports here and there. I think he's at the college football playoff tonight uh, doing some color stuff for uh, for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, we sat down and talked Disney. Uh, loved our conversation. We hit everything from the theme parks to to why he, he still sort of retains his love for uh, for those, uh, we also get into the movies, especially the animated movies, the Pixar class and Power Rank, our favorite ones. Um, it's a lot of fun. After that, we will be back, Gareth and I, to distract you. Stick around. When we said we were going to talk about Disney... Uh, I initially kind of in, in my mind bucketed into two camps. There's like entertainment Disney and then like uh, theme park Disney. So yeah. how do these two worlds sort of operate within <laughs> your life? Are you, were, 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 did one lead to the other or um, uh, did, did, you know, I guess I'm just wondering like how you kind of transitioned into your ultimate sort of feelings about Disney. Right. Okay. So my, Look, I think that's a pretty common story. My mom is a big fan, so I was exposed to the movies very young. I probably watched the the uh, animated Peter Pan uh, every single day when I was a kid. Yeah, and the and, and the eighty nine Little Mermaid. It's pretty much all I watched. I watched Peter Pan, The Little Mermaid, and Cinderella, and all the Disney animated films, mostly the old ones, and then started moving into the new ones that they started to come out. I was born in 1988, so I was one when The Little Mermaid came out, and I was (laughs) three when Beauty and the Beast came out. So I was born right at the beginning of the Renaissance. But really, my as much I always loved the movies, but my interest really was the parks first and foremost. My mom was a big fan of the parks. My mom had great memories of going to Disneyland when she was a kid, and she even remembered going to the World's Fair in 64, even though she was only like three oh, at wow. the time. But she still remembered it and remembered seeing it the Small World and Carousel Progress. Um, and I had a tape. I had a video, like a sing-along video called Disneyland Fun, which I have looked up on YouTube to make sure I actually knew what it was. And it was great <laughs> memories. It was like a 20, 30-minute sing-along video where there's a bunch of kids just running around Disneyland singing songs. Uh and that got me hooked as a kid. We started going and I went when I was three. And then we went again when I was like six or seven. And I really liked it. But, you know, I didn't really think of it as something I was a fan of because I didn't know that it was something you could be a fan of. Right. When I was that young, where it really crystallized was when we went to Florida when I was about 12, 12 or 13. Um that was the year of the millennium celebration at Epcot, um, which I was just so inspired by and moved by. And when I got home from that experience, after being just so blown away by what I had seen and being just feeling 
I had a lot of emotions wrapped up in this millennial celebration. I thought it was so, it was millennium, not millennial, millennium, big difference. Uh, I, I consider it. I consider it the Willennium after Will Smith's song. Yeah, <laughs> Will 2K. I, I, I just thought it was so great, and that's when the internet was just starting, and that's when I realized there was this whole world of other people that were fans of the parks like I was, um, and then I realized, oh, this is something I could actually be an enthusiast of. There's a whole community of people out here, literally thousands of people on this new thing called the internet. Uh, who have similar feelings and that just sort of sparked my overall interest and I just became more into it as I got older. How often do you go to the parks? And I, I, I preface this uh, by saying I, I have, I've had some traumatic experiences, uh, <laughs> mildly Which I traumatic. Which I want to hear about. Yes. <laughs> I've had some traumatic, really traumatic experiences at Disneyland, at Disney World. So I, I'm I'm not someone that's like flocking to go back. In fact, when my when I have a four year old and a one year old daughters, uh, and uh, when my four year old recently said, um, you know, she wants to go to Disney World, I said, well, when you were one, we promised you would take you when you were seven. So now she's just counting uh-huh. down the years. I'm just oh, stalling man. as much as possible. But I I've run into a number of people over the years who are adults. Uh, some with kids, many without kids, who go to Disney every year. Some run marathons down there. Some just go to hang out. Um, athletes go. Uh, we we had Sam Allenpour from ESPN on the show last week, and he uh, he was talking about like you know just he and his friends like day drinking at Disney on a on a Wednesday. So there's an adult culture around Disney. So I guess I just wonder how how did you navigate the transition from childlike wonder of the Disney experience to adult appreciation for what you like about it now? So for me, I don't. People think of the parks, and they immediately think of, you know, they think of the castle and I think of the characters and I think it's, and I understand that. And it is obviously a place that's very much geared toward kids. But as I got older, where my interest started lying was in a, the history of the parks and the incredible artists who designed them, especially Disneyland with Walt Disney's help. Obviously Walt Disney oversaw the creation of Disneyland and was alive for the first over the first decade of its existence. He never made it to see Disney World in Florida. He already had died, but it was in the works when he had died. So I became really interested in that aspect. I became really interested in Walt Disney, the person. I've read multiple books about Walt Disney's life, at least three or four. Uh, the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco is the most one of the most incredible places in the world. Even if you don't think you are a Disney fan, I would highly recommend going if you're ever in San Francisco, just because it's an incredible uh, it's just an incredible history museum where you learn about this guy that unfortunately the well, the modern Disney company has sort of gone away from acknowledging. The modern Disney company is really bad at acknowledging that this was started by a human being. Uh, I got really upset actually when, I don't remember exactly when this happened, but at some point in the not too recent distant past, the Disney films uh, on the on their card on their title card in front of all their movies took Walt Disney's name out of it. It used to be called, it used to say Walt Disney pictures Mm. and now it just says Disney. And I don't remember exactly when that changed. It wasn't that long ago. And that really annoyed me because it's turning this person that built an incredible thing, this incredible artist and visionary uh, and making him sort of like a, like a Colonel Sanders type figure. Right. Or he was a real person too. But you know what I mean, like an Aunt Jemima type figure, like a like a fake spokesperson that never really existed, and that really bothered me. So that's uh, what by I, the I way, really... we we don't talk about Aunt Jemima when we mention Disney because we don't want to talk about Song of the South, right? Yeah, well, we should we could talk about Song of the South. That's a whole other interesting story. That's a fascinating story in and of itself. But so that's what really caught my interest as I I got older and I started really appreciating just the incredible artists that built this place and still build it. I, I really do view these parks as art and they're made by artists. And I wish that, you know, the modern parks stuck more to the ideals sometimes that Walt Disney and the original artists had when they built Disneyland. I don't always think <laughs> that yeah. current people stick to it because, you know, the modern Disney company is all about IP and all about acquiring properties. And I understand that that's how you make money. but 
that's sort of what caught my interest as an adult and what keeps me going back. And it's what separates it for me for every other theme park in the world. Like I've been to Universal in Florida, for instance, and it's great. And technologically, it's brilliant. In some ways, Universal is ahead of Disney, at least in terms of ride technology. But no one uh, is able to build a world the way the Disney parks. And that really starts with Walt himself and what he created, this incredibly new thing that everyone thought would fail ended up being a worldwide phenomenon. Well, yeah, and and they always talk about how when and anyone who's either like you said read a book about Disney or seen the PBS uh, documentaries on him knows like he was such a taskmaster when it came to keeping the park magical. Uh, the the sports equivalent of it was when Jordan in the in the '90s was always asked like why why do you always have your signature look on all the time when you leave. And he's like, because that might be the only time people see Michael Jordan. Um, and I think Disney always appreciated that when when some kids coming into the park, they really need to feel like they were transported to a magical realm. That is the mythos. That is what makes our entire brand. And I agree. I mean, there's no way for a corporate... In our corporate universe now, there's no way for that to be sustained. Right. And look, there's still certain things that remain, you know, in terms of upkeep of the parks that still really important that, that those sort of things have not changed in terms of the way that the employees are trained, the way customer service is done and valued that really has continued in a lot of ways. Um, you still see, you know, the way the horticulture is done and the way the, the paint is constantly redone. Like, so I do, I do appreciate how some of those original ideals have stuck around all these years later, but what has changed in a huge way, is just the going away from original storytelling. And that's the case in film as well. That's not just a Disney problem. It's a problem with the entire entertainment industry. Uh, when Walt, when Disneyland was built, right? Yeah, there were the, the rides built around the films. There was the Peter Pan ride and the Snow White ride. But when we think of Disney, the best rides they ever built were the ones that were based on original stories. Pirates of the Caribbean, for instance, which... Unfortunately, I literally was having this conversation with someone yesterday who didn't know that Pirates of the Caribbean, the ride, <laughs> came before the movie. By not just uh. came before, but came before it by fifty years almost over four, over forty years. Pirates uh, of the Caribbean, real quick, had no business actually being a movie franchise. That was supposed to be an epic bomb. And if it had not been for Johnny Depp doing the strange characterization of Jack Sparrow, which every Disney investor and producer said, what is he doing? Stop this, stop this. And they let him go. And he got an Oscar nomination and it just started this whole franchise. Uh, yeah, I don't we, know how that movie worked. I know. It, worked. I, I really believe if any other actor is cast and they play it straight, that movie sucks. <laughs> I know. It's bizarre. But in a way, it bothers me that it was so successful because it is taken away to an extent from the original attraction, which was so great. Now Johnny Depp has it's in the ride and like the music from the movies in the ride. And these are all changes that, Oh, I they changed that, the ride. I didn't even know that they changed the, they, they, they did the Anakin Skywalker thing where they like put Hayden oh, Christensen at the end of Return a of the little Jedi. Bit. So it's, oh. done, it's done what I would, I would describe it as done tastefully where it didn't, they didn't fully gut it and retheme the story around. The films, there's still like the the story. If you could, there isn't a story to the Pirate of the Caribbean ride, but sort of the 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 scene, the world building that was in the original ride that is not changed. But there's like randomly a couple Johnny Depp animatronics. There's a Barbosa animatronic, and it's just really out of place because it clearly was shoehorned in. <laughs> uh, but that bothered me because it took away Pirate of the Caribbean, the original, especially the Disneyland version, which is. The the best is it's significantly better than the Florida version, which a lot of people don't know. Uh, it's actually double the length of the Florida version. There's an incredible story, which we can get into if you want, about how Pirates of the Caribbean ended up in Florida. It's actually a crazy. Yeah, you know what? Story. Hey, man, it's just not sports. Do not hold back on Disney lore. Hit me with it right now. So here's what happened: when Pirates of the Caribbean opened in Disneyland, it was uh, an um, immediate incredible success it was the most incredible ride anyone had ever seen these incredible you know these incredible robots and and animatronic pirates this was in 1967 when it opened 
so then Walt Disney World opened, Magic Kingdom. That was in 1971, four years later. And there was no Pirates of the Caribbean at the Magic Kingdom when that park opened four years later. The reason for that was twofold. One, uh, there was no New Orleans section in the Magic Kingdom. The, the thought being Florida's too close to New Orleans. We don't need to have, we shouldn't have a New Orleans section of the park because we're already close to New Orleans. We're going to have replace it with a colonial American section. So there's no that, no New Orleans square for Pirates of the Caribbean. And two, uh, there's something called Gasparilla, which is a pirate festival every year that takes place in Tampa, about 70 miles down I 4. A big pirate theme fest. My wife actually grew up in Tampa, so she, Used to go to this festival every single year. It's a huge deal in Florida. Uh, so they thought we don't need pirates. It would seem weird. There's too much pirate stuff already in Florida. Uh, so people started coming to the park in 1971. And at the end of the day, everyone would go to guest relations and say, I had a great day, but where's that pirates ride I heard so much about from my friends in California? Why is that not here? Where is it? Uh, and they got so many complaints from people saying, where's the Pirates ride? That they said, oh my God, we made a huge mistake. And they decided very quickly to shoehorn uh, a Pirates of the Caribbean into Magic Kingdom and Adventureland, uh, where a lot less money was put into it and done very, very quickly. So the ride is literally half the length. Instead of about a 15-minute ride, it's about uh. seven. And is just thrust in. And they actually, <laughs> to sort of put the kicker on the story, they took all the money out of this other project that one of the artists was working on. This was supposed to be called the Western River Expedition. This enormous, gigantic, proposed thing in the park. Uh, they took all the money out of that and said, you're off that project. Uh, go make a halfway version of Pirates of the Caribbean of a year. <laughs> uh, and that other project never got made. We'll never know what it would have been like. It probably would have been awesome. And... <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> I, I loved Pirates. My favorite like attraction like that, uh, and I don't remember which, uh -huh. I think it was in Disneyland, was the Haunted Mansion. Uh, later became the um, critically acclaimed movie with Eddie Murphy. Oh, God. I saw that movie in theaters, <laughs> and I was so disappointed. Yeah. Where, where's the Guillermo del Toro Haunted Mansion film that he's been Oh, for like 10 years please that he's gonna make someone salvage the franchise I, I loved the haunted mansion i like those i'm I, I like i'm with you i like pirates of the caribbean i like haunted mansion i like the, i like the rides that kind of take you into a world uh give you something that's a little unexpected uh is a story it's not just like uh oh i'm on the matterhorn and it's kind of just jerking me around and my neck hurts uh um, yeah but let me give you my traumatic experiences because I'm going to do it through the lens of asking you about these areas. So the okay, first is when I was like four years old, my family went to Disneyland in LA. Uh, and my mom forever has told this story that we went on the, I believe it's called Big Thunder Mountain or I always, yeah, I, I always called about, I always called it the runaway train. And so yeah. mom, mom used to say that I was just, I don't know how old I was. Maybe I was six. I don't know. But I was just just tall enough to ride. And so they were like, okay, you can go. But, like, you know, he's right on the edge. And mom goes, it's fine. You know, it's the 80s. <laughs> it's fine. People didn't care back then. Oh, man. We have a whole <laughs> new appreciation of how our parents parented us in the 80s. And it involved a lot of go on your bike and just go outside and just uh, see a dinner. So we were on there. And I guess my mom said that when we got off the ride, I was screaming and crying so badly that she could hear the she had to walk out past the line of people and she could hear other parents say I can't believe that lady let her like let her son do that. Oh ride. no. Like for a mile. You know what I mean like just walking past like the 2 hour line out of that ride. So oh, but no. I, but I want to know like what was your favorite roller coaster like thrill ride uh, at at either of the Disney parks? Well, so I always I I was scared of roller coasters too. Um, so it took me a long time to get the nerve up to ride Space Mountain. And I, by the time I did, I really liked it. But I had a traumatic story like that too. When I was about three, it was in the Haunted Mansion. Actually, uh, I waited on the line for the Haunted Mansion. My parents said it's not scary. It's not scary, and it's really not scary. It's called the Haunted Mansion, but it's really more humorous than scary. But when you're three, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I was still right. scared, and we got. <laughs> In, there's a the first room before you get on the ride. You're like in this room 
you're still you're still like standing up. It's like before you get on the ride. And in the I still remember like very vividly, there were these there these like gargoyles holding candles. They're not really candles, I guess, but they're supposed to look like candles. And for some reason, they freaked me out so bad that I started crying and screaming and ran out of the room. Uh, and and I didn't go on the ride for like five more years after that experience. Hey, man, we've all, <laughs> look, we've all been there. I remember the first time we went to Disney, that same trip, there's a section of It's a Small World where when you're waiting in line, it looks like the people going in turn into little dolls. And I had such a freak out that mom wouldn't let me, almost wouldn't let me go on. I guess it, I guess looking back, saying this out loud, I was probably an anxious, weird kid, and uh, I need to own some of this. Yeah, I mean, look, the kids do get scared. No kids get scared a lot about when they meet the characters. Like oh, they'll say, yeah. "Oh, I'm so excited to meet Mickey Mouse," and they'll be so excited, so excited, and then they get to meet him and they start crying because <laughs> they they like he's really tall and they don't really know like what to do, and they just freak out. Like, exactly, kids cry all the time. Especially the ones that are like wearing costume masks, like the, the the characters that are just like wearing their normal face. They don't usually cry, but kids don't cry with them. But Mickey Mouse or Goofy, they're really tall on TV. They're <laughs> yeah. really small, right? Like and they're, they're stiff, cartoon. and they they look different than you know on TV. But you recognize them, but you don't, and you just don't know is this real. This is like my my, my four year old. I took her. My wife was doing something, and I took my four year old to a um and my baby to to see Santa. And my four-year-old walked right up and I, I was worried she was going to be scared. And she's like, you know, Santa, here's what I want. I want this, this, this. And then these other kids sat on Santa's lap and were crying. And, and, and she, my daughter walked back up to Santa and goes, Santa, I tell you what, why don't you just tell them what you want for Christmas? And I was like, yeah, girl. Yeah, do it. Take control. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but I'm with you. Like th- those, those characters can be, can be freaky. I, I, I mean, I guess I should preface like, my traumatic experience, that's a, that's a kid traumatic that I talked about with Disneyland. I went on my father's uh, honeymoon to Disney World. He remarried when I was in, I don't know, uh, seventh, eighth grade, something like that. And okay. he, he, like, he said, we're going to go to Disney World and you guys are going to come with us and we'll do like a family trip. But we hadn't really had a really good onboarding <laughs> with uh, his new wife who we're still, I, I I'm, I'm close with now. It's, it's all good. Like, you know, it's, this is not a strange you know story about the personalities, but it was an awkward thing to do with a kid. But what really, what really uh, drove that home was being in middle school is like the worst age to be at Disney world to me because Epcot was boring to me. At that right. age, it was informational and or I couldn't drink anywhere. And the rides were too either too kiddie or you had to wait three hours to go on Space Mountain. And you're just standing right. there with like my older sister just not talking to my dad's new wife and me being like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> like, and, and, and spoiler to our millennial audience, no phones. You just had to stare. The, the, the honey, the, the second honeymoon, I think, was just a problem. <laughs> this was a bad idea in general, I think. But Epcot is a kind of doom there. But Epcot, I I do think though that Epcot at a certain age gets cool again. So I'm wondering from your perspective, like what things did you just sort of age out of, and then maybe age back into in the Disney universe? Well, look, I I had no interest as a kid in the World Showcase section of Epcot, the countries. I just didn't care at all. Right. When I was a kid, I thought it was really boring. There are, no, there are very few rides there, and I didn't really appreciate it um, at all. And now it's one of my favorite parts of Epcot. Uh, I think Epcot in general is a place that it, it's like lost its thread a little bit. The original model of Epcot was so ambitious and so uh, creative and interesting. And unfortunately, modern world's intention spans just don't really fit very well with this sort of we're going to try to teach you something about the world. Uh, it just didn't really work, but I now really come to appreciate Epcot as it is. And actually I, if I could go back in time for Disney world, it would be, I wish I could go see Epcot in the eighties when it was mm. like apparently awesome. And I didn't, didn't get to see it. I was too young. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of like things that you grow out of, I mean, 
look, when I was in when I was in middle school, I didn't care about some of like the slower rides either. And I did find myself growing back into them for reasons that I discussed with, I started being like, well, what's the history behind this? What, look how creative some of these rides are. Look at um, the effects that these people came up with in the sixties that are still effective today without the use of computers. Like look at the haunted mansion, all those ghost effects. They, none of that's digital. There was no right. digital technology. All of that is done with sort of clever, uh, very simple, but very well-orchestrated special effects. And they still hold up all these years later. And that just fascinates me to this day. Let's transition to movies, because recently you posted your power rankings of all the Pixar movies. I sure did. So give us, give our listeners your, your top five. Okay, so... I should preface this by saying I'm gonna take a, I always take a lot of flack for my Pixar ratings. Uh, so I'm sure that will happen again here, and that's <laughs> fine. But I have a complete obsession, unabashed, will defend it to the grave, love of the movie Ratatouille. It is one of my favorite. It's pro, it is my favorite animated movie of all time. I have seen this movie. I've seen Ratatouille at least ten times. Uh, this past year, this past like a month or two ago, my good friend, Matt Hooper, maybe he's listening to this. I'm going to have to send it to him. So he is listening to this. We went to a screening in New York, uh, a 35 millimeter film screening of Ratatouille to celebrate the 10 year anniversary of the movie in New York city. And it was completely full. And that's when I realized there are a lot of people that really like Ratatouille because they showed up on a Saturday afternoon to watch a random animated movie that was over. That was 10 years old. Uh, and that made me really, really happy. So that is my favorite uh, Pixar movie, indisputably. My second favorite is Finding Nemo. I think the animation in it is incredible. The water effects. I think the characters are all really well done. I think it's really funny. It's one of the funniest Pixar movies. And unlike Finding Dory, it's not really annoying. Yeah, Finding Dory is not a good movie because it took all the bad parts of Finding Nemo and made it the main story. Uh, it was like Joey, a- Joey, the sitcom from Friends. You know, it's like yeah. Joey is great as a supporting character, but two hours of it is annoying. There's a reason why the Olaf adventure got pulled from the Coco screening. Because even <laughs> 20 minutes of Olaf is annoying if it's all in one shot. You need these characters work in small doses. I mean, Finding Nemo is my second favorite. Next was Toy Story, the original Toy Story. It's the OG Pixar first computer animated film ever made. Uh, feature film ever made. It still holds up. It was so remarkable when we saw it the first time. But but a lot of people thought Toy Story was just going to be a technological wonder. It's a lot more than that. It's a great story with incredible characters that still live in the pop culture world today. There's a fourth Toy Story movie coming out uh, soon. So that shows how impactful that movie was. My next favorite is Wally. Brilliant. It's a silent movie for half the movie. I do think it loses the thread a little in the third act, but I was always so impressed by the first two that I don't think it matters that much that it devolves a little bit into just a standard sort of chase at the end. And my next favorite is Inside Out, which is more of a newer Pixar movie, sort of later day Pixar. But I think, again, so ambitious, tells such an adult story. And I was so incredibly moved by the message of that movie. I thought it was so brave that they decide we're going to make a movie where the overall point of this film is to say that it's okay to be sad and we're going to market that to children. Uh, I just thought that was so incredible and I don't even know how they got away with that. It's unlike any uh, animated movie really I've ever seen. So those are my top five. And I know everyone's screaming right now about Up. Where's Up? Why are you not talking about Up? Uh, I think Up is by far the most overrated Pixar movie. Yes. I don't even think it's very good at I'm all. I'm out on Up, man. I'm out on Up. And the one I would I would say that I think needs to be in the top five would be The Incredibles. But I, I'm not I'm not challenging any of your top five. I mean, I think that I think they're totally fine. But I I think The Incredibles is both thrilling action movie uh, and really interesting family drama about getting older. Now, the, the, the difficulty with that is, is it really a kid's movie? It's probably not a kid's movie, um, if you really think about it. The same way that, like, Star Wars is a kid's movie, but Empire Strikes Back is not a kid's movie. Well, 
Yeah, that's the problem with Ratatouille as well. Right? Kids do not like Ratatouille because it's not a kids movie. It's just not. It's 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 like thematically so too sophisticated for kids under the age of like at least. I mean, yeah. The, the final scene of Rat like Ratatouille when Anton Ego, my favorite character, the critic, the restaurant critic, voiced by Peter O'Toole brilliantly, by the way, uh, when he has his long soliloquy at the end, his, his long his big monologue about about art and where art comes from and the nature of criticism and how art could come from anywhere if you have an open mind. This is not something any child's going to understand or appreciate at all. Right. And I think The Incredibles like that. Actually, The Incredibles, I think, was was rated PG, not G also. Yeah, well, they talk about, you know, terrorism and, and things that at the time were, you know, I remember reading reviews that were, you know, parents saying, I don't want to show this to my kids. I don't want them to think the bad guys are real. And I'm like, well, I mean, the bad guys are real, but... What do you want to do? Uh, the the other the other thing about you mentioned Inside Out and how how do they get away with telling a, a story that emotional? And I, I think and I hate to sound cynical, I think they get away with that because there's now an animated Oscar. If there wasn't, I'm not sure that the boardrooms would allow these uh, higher these higher, deeper, more meaningful films to take over to the extent that they've done. Um, if it was just about selling, you know, selling merch. And, I mean, and eventually what I think Disney will probably get to is one for you, one for us, right? They'll probably do like one uh, prestige picture a year with these like uh, animated, and then they'll do one that's more like Cars 3. They just need to get new material because the Cars, I just, no one cares. Well, unfortunately, I think that's where Pixar is at now, which I think is right. a real shame. Uh, Pixar... From Pixar pre-Disney, before Disney owned Pixar, it was obviously a much different studio. It was yeah. a more ambitious studio in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think what you just described about, I think that how you thought the, the animated Oscar has made a role. I think that's true to a lo- an extent. But I think in the case of Pixar, I don't think it's true. I think Pixar was built around this idea of we are going to make these great animated, high-minded animated films and that these movies came out before the animated Oscar existed. Toy Story came out in 95. I think the animated film Oscar started in 2000. So it was five years before, but then Disney comes and buys the studio. And then all of a sudden things change. And now we're in this world where it is every other movie. I mean, later day Pixar is just not very good. If we look at uh, Pixar since 2011, uh, we're talking about cars Two, brave monsters university inside out. That was a winner. The Good Dinosaur, which was terrible, Finding Dory, Cars 3, and Coco, which was very good. So that's two out of one, two, three, four, five. It's two out of seven that I would say were really great. And then you then you think about, well, between in 2007 to 2010, you had Ratatouille, Wally up in Toy Story 3 in four consecutive years. Yeah, but look, uh, I mean, you're a baseball writer. In baseball terms, they're, they're okay. <laughs> No, they're doing fine. Like, don't get me wrong, but there's a big drop. Two out of seven. You know what is that? Two two sixty. You know they, they play for the Royals. Yeah, next but year. when the standard was we were going to release Ratatouille, <laughs> Wally up in Toy Story three in consecutive summers. That yeah, is such an incredible run. Which I still can't believe that actually exists. I can tell you what's not better, and that's the Shrek movies because those are trash. <laughs> yeah, they're bad, and they're like that's done. There are no more Shreks, right? I, I I don't know. I can you ever say they're done? Like, couldn't you see you know Justin Timberlake and Mike Myers and Cameron Diaz coming back for one? You know Shrek colon the last paycheck. You know, I mean yeah. it's it's gonna it's gonna happen at some point. Look, uh, once once Minions made over a billion dollars at the box office, that's when I knew that. Yeah. Okay, we're in trouble. That movie made $1.1 billion worldwide, and it was Minions. Ugh, brutal. Well, man, we appreciate your storytelling. This was great. Breaking down Disney, breaking down the movies, the parks, my traumatic history, which is not really that traumatic. I mean... I, no, not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I will say, as a uh, you know, as someone who is very mindful of how horrible online interaction is, when, when, when baseball fans get pissed at like your commentary, do you ever just pretend uh, you're the guy who wrote Guns, Germs, Germs and Steel and like, you know, just be like, you got the wrong Twitter handle? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I really judge people based on 
uh, whether they mistake me for <laughs> ju- that Jared Diamond or the Jared Diamond jewelry shop. Oh, you know, uh, J- I, he went to Jared? <laughs> like, yeah, I, so I really feel like I learn a lot about a person based on which <laughs> thing they mistake me for. Smart, if you, if you mistake me for the the... Uh, you know the the Pulitzer Prize winner. Yeah, right. Must be pretty I smart. read that book. That book's good, you know. But you know, it's sure. it's a it's a slog, but it's good. So I do. I always appreciate being mistake, mistaken <laughs> for him. I, I understand. It, he's a he. I'm trying to one day become the real Jared Diamond. I'm not there yet. I think it's still him, but hopefully one day I, I become the real one. On Just Not Sports, my friend, you are the real deal, Jared Diamond for life. Thank you for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all find something cool and interesting to do with their lives. And then we, the fans and media, tell them to stop, to get back to game film because they are a locker room distraction. Hog wash. We know that life is just work and the things that distract you from work. So on this show, we end every week by celebrating the things distracting us. And Gareth, if you don't mind, I'm going to go first. Do it. I've been watching some Mad Men reruns on the Audience Network. Audience wow. is a is a network on DirecTV. I think it's just on DirecTV. I don't know that for certain. But they run daily. They do one episode a day, and then each episode that ran during the week, they play in succession in a, like a mini marathon on uh, Saturdays in the afternoons. And these are like prime time on Saturdays that I'm at home watching the kids while my while my wife is out doing stuff or at the gym or whatever. So I've been getting back into it. Garrett, did you ever watch Mad Men when it was on? I, in truth, found the pacing laborious and did not get into that show. It's cool. It's cool. I mean, some people it's, need it's, to just be basic. Some totally. people need to be basic. Right. <laughs> it, it would be very much more on brand for me to have cried when it ended. But for whatever reason, that one, I just, I missed that and I missed Breaking Bad. I guess it was a bad era for me, but. No, I, uh, I don't have any problem with someone saying they don't like the aesthetic of the show. Cause I agree with you. I think it was. It was that type of restrained acting that Mm -hmm. some people just can't handle. Um, But I also think that we've seen other period dramas. I can handle it in a movie, but spread out over that scope was where I had my problem with it, I guess. I don't well, know. So enough is, about me. I would, I'd rather hear your take on it. So it just, Well, it look, first matter. of all, working in working in like the marketing ad um, type of world, I loved... I think they really nailed a lot of the dynamic between client and agency. I thought their workplace stuff was really good. So I wanted to give a couple suggestions of individual episodes to try out you know, if they do, if you can download them or, 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 or stream a season or something and just see if you like the show and then you might want to decide to, uh, to, to, to reboot or, 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 you know, start from the beginning. The first is The Suitcase. This is probably the most critically acclaimed episode. It's also a bottle episode that just follows Don Draper and Peggy, um, his, his pro- protege, if you will. Um, as they spend an entire night trying to write a pitch for the suit uh, for a suitcase, and really, it's really just about their characters in general. A bottle episode is a difficult one to come into because it's just really self-contained. But I think, to me, I think it probably it blends humor and drama in a way that I think the show was capable of doing but didn't always do uh, as overtly as it does in episodes like this. Hmm. I also think Shut the Door, Have a Seat, that's the episode where they leave their current agency in sort of a palace coup and create a new one. That's probably my favorite episode of the show ever um, just because of all the intrigue and just the subtle ways that they kind of decide who they're going to take with them and who they don't. It's great. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Wheel, and you can go to to YouTube and see this clip. The most famous, I think, individual scene in Mad Men, and I could be getting that wrong, is Don giving a pitch of a slide projector, and they want to name it The Wheel, and he calls it The Carousel, and all he does is show old pictures of his family. And the people in the room are just like, wow, this is crazy, like how nostalgic he is for his family. But he's having an understanding of like that he's really miserable in his family, and it's never going to be... The, the way that it looks 
in these pictures again. And he, there's a part of him that longs for the past. And the, the way he describes it is probably the best advertising moment on the show. Uh, but you can see that online. It's just, it's a fascinating scene. And then finally, I, the, the Christmas comes but once a year where that tobacco client comes in for an impromptu Christmas party is one of the most devastating examples of client versus agency dynamic I've ever been, I've ever seen. And as someone who's been on the wrong side of that dynamic too many times in my career, highly recommend it. <laughs> if you want to just see how a client can abuse the favor um, in a very subtle way. It's not like, oh, sleep with me and I'll give you the business. It's just a subtle thing that he does that you just go, oh, what a fucking prick. So... Mm-hmm. Those are my Mad Men recommendations if you want to wade into the waters and decide if it's worth investing the rest of the time. Because, man, getting through a, a serialized drama, seven seasons worth, that's a huge commitment. Well, that was also that started back when like seasons were longer and there were more episodes. I do think that like trimming down season sizes is a good outgrowth of the Netflix era of television. What I intended to talk about today is kind of from the Mad Men era, and I'm going to plow ahead with that. Uh, A buddy of mine, he's like my movie friend. Um, He called me up about a week ago. He's like, hey, I've got tickets to go see There Will Be Blood. Do you want to go? He was playing at a theater here in New York. I was like, sure. I had seen it once when it first came out in like 2007, 2008 on a DVD on a TV you know, I was probably paying half attention. I was like, this is a good movie, but it's long and it's weird and whatever. I was just like, yeah, I should probably revisit that. Let's let's go to the movie theater. And seeing that in a theater, you know, just uh, 10 years after it came out, that was one of the most profound cinema experiences of my life. That was crazy. Um, I think that movie is incredible. It might be one of the best movies I've ever seen. It doesn't I don't know if I like it. Like I don't need to watch it again right away. Um speaking of Moby Dick, like Moby Dick is my favorite book, but it's big and thorny and hard to read. And I think that There Will Be Blood kind of reminded me of that. But um, <laughs> although Gareth, for full disclosure for our audience, you are the guy who likes the what are they called intercalary chapters about <laughs> about whaling. Oh, I think that's the most important part of the book. Without that, it is not as good a book, yes. But that's what it, like, I don't know. I think that there's some of that and there will be blood. Like, any movie that starts out with 20 minutes of, like, silent, like, silver digging and oil well drilling is, you know, it's not a fun movie. Were you a critic then? No. What year was it? Uh, Oh, like, 2007 was... There will be but blood. it was late 07, no, right? I, th- yes. That yeah, was the yeah. last year that I reviewed films, and that, but I was done by July. So, I mean, like, late 07 was There Will Be Blood, No Country for Old Men, Zodiac, Michael Clayton. I mean, like, that was a crazy year for movies. Okay. Let's just break that down real quick, because I really think Zodiac is overrated. Ooh, whoa, wow. I know. It's really tough. And and here's my here's my uh here's my point with that. I'm I it's a wonderfully stylish movie. Mm-hmm. I think the performances are great and I love the look of it, okay? Yep. I don't think that movie is confident enough in the rather controversial stance it takes that Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac. It hedges a lot of bets along the way. And I guess that's the point. But then at the very end, it's like, oh, by the way, like you should leave thinking it was Arthur Lee Allen. I will agree with you 100% on your main critique. I wish it was a movie that didn't even attempt in the end titles to make anything in the way of a claim to who they, who did it or put anything on there i think in particular the scene with the basement late in the movie throws too much doubt on what the movie actually thinks totally that totally that scene in particular they're they're hedging their bets too much or david fincher's hedging his bets too much but as the movie to me succeeds almost entirely as a like a mood piece that scene adds so much to the creepy fucking mood of the whole film 
that I wouldn't want to cut it out. I just don't. I think they'd have to find a different way to handle it. People who probably don't follow true crime as much just may not uh, care. But for those of us who maybe have followed the case or read a few books on it or whatever, I just found that to be problematic. I guess you could say right. it shouldn't. It shouldn't ruin the artistic merit of the movie. I just as a as a film experience on that case, it's just something I can't quite wrestle with. I, I don't quite know what that movie's trying to say about the actual killer itself. And I don't. I, I guess I, don't I think, almost uh, wish like. I wish he just wouldn't have gone there. It's like, you don't need to. Make it about the characters trying to find the Zodiac, fine. Well, I think for the most part it is until those end titles come up or that final scene comes up with the guy going in to ID somebody. I think that's what makes the movie, like I've said this to people, I was like, uh, in reference to other films, I think Zodiac did it best. Like the main character of Zodiac is the Zodiac killer who is never seen on screen, you know, like as the Zodiac killer. Like it's a movie about obsession and everyone's obsessing about it. I also love how differently it's structured narratively where the first half of the film is entirely centered on the killer in this investigation while the newspapers are just trying to keep up. And then as the investigation dies and Robert Graysmith gets obsessed, like the newspapers become the source of obsession and the cops just kind of fall away. I just, I love the shift that it takes halfway through um, from, you know, being a police movie to basically like a Jake Gyllenhaal movie. Um, yeah. That, like look, even, even Gyllenhaal though, at the end, like I feel like it was his, it really sort of becomes his movie. It becomes, yeah. Oh, he's the only one hanging with it till the end. And and it almost I think wants to validate and here's his theory and his theory is corroborated by at least this other person, and yeah. to me that belies what I think is the stronger theme of the movie, which is what you just said. It's about obsession and not knowing. Yep. Fincher is like too good of a of a storyteller to have to hedge his bets. Well, what one thing I love about that and like this is the beauty of like, as you age and mature, like your relationship to art changes. Like I like being able to revisit this stuff. And originally that's why I brought this up, like revisiting these things in their original form in a theater without your phone on, without a computer, without kids 10 years later and trying to make sense of them again and just see them on their own terms as work of art was, it was a fascinating, great experience kind of changed my whole week. And I would recommend it to anyone. So there you go. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, that is our show for this week. We will end with some shout outs. I'll give a shout out to Jared Diamond. Thank you for joining the show and talking Disney. Uh, Respect his power rankings of the animated movies. Uh, My daughter saw Coco. I have not seen it, but I hear good things. I got good rave reviews from her. Quick shout out and a mini distraction. Um, if you want to learn more on the Disney uh, theme parks, uh, Studio 360 at WNYC, Kurt Anderson's the host, uh, Peabody winning show. He's my neighbor. They did a series, American Icons. And I never thought I would say this for a series that includes Moby Dick and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The single best episode was on the Disney theme parks. So my shout out is to Studio 360, American Icons. Give a listen to the Disney theme park episode. Nice. I'm going to have to check that out. And uh, we'll end with our usual, Adam's usuals. Uh, my boy Uzi. Def Jeff. Meech. No, Little Swanee. <laughs> Meech. <laughs> Ron Mack. Other cousin Ron. I always feel like we're forgetting someone. Any of the immortal words of. Poet Laureate Shaquille O'Neal Booty Rappers Stay Booty Stay Booty Stay Booty, Stay booty. Stay booty.